late 1980s, most airlines were without formal UFO reporting systems. The bulk of UFO reports made by commercial pilots were handled by private organizations such as the Mutual UFO Network. Without a formal protocol for reporting UFOs, only a handful of pilots have made it onto official reports about strange phenomena they've witnessed during their flights. Not to mention, often pilots feel pressured to keep their experiences secret as discussion about some of these strange events can be detrimental to their careers. On the evening of November 17, 1986, a Japanese Airlines flight traveling through the skies of Alaska would be witness to one of the most terrifying events of the crew's careers. A 30-minute encounter that was backed up by radar that remains to this day as one of the most intriguing and detailed UFO cases reported by a crew of a commercial airline. This case file joined the theorists as they put their seats and tray tables in their upright positions and talk about the tale of... The Japanese Airlines 1628 UFO Incident Welcome to Alien Theorist Theorizing Case File 181, the Japanese Airline 1628 UFO Incident. I'm Brayden. I'm Zell. I'm Dan. Yeah, we didn't really discuss that intro before we did it, did we? I was going to say that really rolls off the tongue, too. <laughs> I'm surprised Brayden got 181 right. <laughs> As I was, uh, as I, I only got it right because I prepped the recording last night after Cosmic Channels. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't really remember what we were calling this one, so I just read the title of our Google Docs, and I was like, "That's uh, not the best." You went, went with the long version of it, but you got it. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting UFO case. Yeah, we're back into the the aliens tonight. Well, maybe not aliens, but. Something. Possibly aliens. Always possible. Let's just get right into it. Sure. So um, this one's probably really interesting because it is probably one of the best. I, we probably say that about a lot of them. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's one of the best documented uh, and best supported UFO sightings. Uh, pretty much like I would say like in history. Yeah, this is, is basically yeah. the Roswell of the sky. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, this one's even, well, I think this one even has more supporting data behind it because it, it involves a lot of people, both not just people, but also technology. So you have things like ra radar signatures, you've got different people, you see people seeing things, but you have like three uh, reputable witnesses. You have uh, another person who is observing them from the ground, ground radar. It, there's a whole bunch of kind of facets involved, which I think make this make this probably one of the best and uh, like well kind of put together UFO sightings. You have a very solid, detailed timeline of what happened from beginning to end of this. Pretty much like a, a little over thirty minutes. Yeah. Uh, of an encounter that the, the the crew of Japanese Airlines 1628 experienced. And I can't, if anyone's like flown commercially and stuff, every now and then you'll like, you'll be up at altitude and you'll catch another plane. 
like you'll see another plane flying either below you or like across in another path. And they always like even just a plane that you can be like, oh, that's a plane looks so out of place. It's so weird to see one. Like while you're in the sky looking out of the window. Yeah. I always just find that when you catch when you see another plane, you're like, it just looks weird. Like everything looks strange. So I couldn't imagine looking out and being like, hmm. That's not a plane. <laughs> I'm no. too busy looking down at the ground and feeling tall. I'm like, yeah, look at everything <laughs> so small. Everyone looks like ants. Yeah, squish them. <laughs> they are ants, Andrew. <laughs> they are ants. Uh, this this encounter occurred on November 17th in 1986. Uh, the people who were reporting it uh, were the Japanese airline 1628 crew, which comprised of Captain Kenju Terauchi. Uh, Captain Terauchi was an ex-fighter pilot. Uh, he was a and a senior airline pilot with Japanese airlines. He had more than 10,000 hours of flight experience, and he had been assigned to this cargo flight, which was... Uh, leaving out of Paris to uh, destination Reykjavik to Anchorage to Tokyo and the cargo was uh, French wine from Paris. A lot of wine. (laughs) That's a lot of wine. So besides Terauchi, you had his co-pilot Takanori Tamafuji and you had flight engineer Yoshio Tsukuba on board as well. And they were all sitting in the cockpit at the time that they sighted something very kind of out of the ordinary. So it's generally accepted that the encounter begins at about 5 p.m. Alaska time. And this is when the Anchorage Air Route Traffic Control, and I'm probably just going to call them ATC from from here on out. Yep. (laughs) Just be easier. Um, And they they contacted uh, the JAL flight uh, to, to verify that they had them on radar so they had just made contact with them and then they asked the pilots to adjust their heading so the plane would pass south of what was uh what is fort yukon and the city of fairbanks so after this course change uh about 5 11 p.m just a few minutes later uh captain teruchi said he was sitting on the left side of the cockpit and he saw what appeared to be unidentified lights outside of his window to the left and below Basically, like, pacing their plane, like, same speed, like, just off on their left. Right. At this point, Captain Terauchi didn't really make anything of these lights because these, uh, he was aware that there are, there are at least two military bases within, uh, within pretty much spitting distance of Anchorage. So he wasn't really concerned at that point. So he's like, okay, it's just probably just a, um, like a military craft or it could be just another plane. It's not a big deal. From what I read is he did find it peculiar that these planes were cho- like choosing to kind of stay on the dark side of the skies. Right. Sure. Right. Like and that's the probably shadows. part of what, yeah, this is part of what he kind of started describing. Like these lights were exhibiting unusual behavior for uh, uh, like an aircraft, a jet, you know, any kind of normal aircraft that would be in the airs at that time. So, he remembers seeing these lights for about several minutes and then the lights kind of started bouncing around the sky, moving back and forth and kind of impossible angles or something uh, to that effect. And then these Boy, lights, <laughs> so some of these, and then these lights actually stopped uh, right in front of the 
of the plane. Maybe like I think they were saying something like 500 feet. They probably yeah, estimated these things were right in front of them. It's it's and like right at this moment, it's painfully obvious to me what's going on. This is intergalactic insurance scammers. They're hitting the brake checks on them, <laughs> right? Getting in front, quick tap of the brake. They're looking for a rear ender to collect those insurance claims. The space dollars. Space right. dollars. Yeah. The insurance yeah. lottery. I've seen it a million times before. Yes. Pull in front of someone, <laughs> slam the brakes on, collect that ICBC, baby. Classic brake check. Yeah. <laughs> now, these lights were so bright and that they just pretty much like illuminate the entire cockpit is uh, pretty much to what Terauchi recalls. And that they actually felt a type of or some type of sensation of warmth through the glass. And from everything I've read, like when I first looked into this, I thought it was uh, heat from like a propulsion system. But then like further reading and clarifying, it, it, it's more like heat when the sun hits you on a cold day. Yeah. And you can feel the the warmth of the of the sun. Like, like the light was emitting heat. It wasn't like it was uh, they were getting blasted, heating up the front end of the of the plane through some propulsion system. These two UFOs who we thought initially initially thought were just some type of other aircraft. It seemed to like, yeah, like he says, defy, seems to defy physics and like jet across the sky. And then yes, about a thousand feet in front of them, they turn, it turned into like a, they like stacked each other. That's what they looked like. So yeah. the lights start, instead of being side by side, they looked like they were stacked each other. And then yeah, like an irradiating light energy filled the co cockpit. And like when I was reading about it, it said it was kind of like a white and yellow strobe. Right, like an amber whitish uh, lights or like a salmon color was described by uh, Tamafuji, the co the co-pilot. So kind of like that, that <laughs> he, pinkish, like, he, like a pinkish he, color. He I'm, was I'm, I'm, I'm so imagining. manly; he dared not say pink. <laughs> well, it's like an orange. Well, like an orange color. I mean, salmon sometimes is orange. It's a nice color. Beautiful. So probably like it's an orangeish whitish color. It's pink. It's pink. Yeah. Yourself. The light it's was fucking pink. Cockpit was filled with a pink light. Let's call it what it is. It's fine. Uh, so. Teruchi described these lights almost flaring and, and kind of alternating in some type of what he interpreted as some type of sequence. And he said that this kind of reminded him of how a space shuttle fires its maneuvering thrusters. That was one of the, the things that he's most quoted as, as saying is from his observations, this thing seemed to be firing off these, uh, these, these lights or these appear to be thrusters he's also quoted as saying that there there appeared to be like other lights kind of shooting off from it or, or sparks emitting from this craft or these two crafts like side by side each other because they had shifted into some type of into an um from like their on top form a vertical formation to a horizontal formation so they keep changing their orientation is what it looks like right that's what it appeared to happen at least to teriuchi so this um, is where he, this is where he's like something's off here I better, you know, after after about a good ten minutes, he's like, something's off. This is this isn't making any sense. I better call this in. <laughs> well, Tamafuji, uh, the co-pilot, uh, contacted Anchorage ATC, and for about thirty minutes after this, so this is like the entire encounter lasted about thirty minutes. The ground control and JL were in constant contact, talking about this UFO, like going back and forth about what they were doing. So they had there's. 30 minutes is a long time when this crazy shit is happening to you. I no imagine kidding. like it's probably like an eternity uh, to pilots, especially pilots who like if this is like, you know, if this is some type of craft that is very near you, it's some type of aerial vehicle or something. 
flying that close to you, you only have seconds to to respond and then try to avoid a, a midair collision, which is every pilot's yeah. worst nightmare. This well, is probably going to be something that really fucking sucks because you're like, I'm not flying a super jet fighter or nothing. I've just got this giant Airbus and I'm like, okay, do I need to turn? Do I need to, what, what can I do? Well, you know, Tamafuji was like, well, we're fucked, boys. Let's crack into this wine. Yeah, <laughs> just go out with a buzz. Reaches yeah. behind the seat, op- opens the first cask. Yeah, starts popping bottles. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as a pilot, though, like having that, like, that feeling of like a mid-air collision would just be the worst, especially as you said, Dan, like they're not in fighter pilots, fighter jets. They're in a, what would you be considered a cruise ship of the air? Well, yeah. Like, like seven, it's a 747. It's basically what fucking blue drives and tailspins. <laughs> the sea deck. Yeah, man. I mean, that thing's pretty maneuverable. <laughs> well, cause he's got I blue, blue driving. Pull some crazy Let's, shit. In yeah, that cause blue's driving. Okay. Tamafuji and Terahuchi aren't any blues. <laughs> Come on. And like right away, their first initial thoughts when they first saw them is they were like, well, maybe this is potentially like a couple military craft out doing a military exercise. So when they're, you know, calling down to ATC of like they have these things on radar and they're going, we have nothing in the air. We are, hold on. We'll confirm if it's military. Uh, there's no military craft. Like describe what you're seeing. I imagine your stress levels all of a sudden like, oh, we have some. Like, you know, unknown craft. We're not sure what they are. We're not sure if this is some military exercise. If not, it us, if it is, it's like you're like it's not the states because they don't know about it. You're like, dude, it's not Terahuchi. Are you kidding me? This guy's got over ten thousand hours of fucking experience. He's an ex fighter pilot. He sees that thing. They don't know what it is. Immediately in his ears, all he starts hearing. Revving up your engine, listen to her howl. Metal under tension, begging you to touch and go. Kenny Loggins plays, hits evasive maneuvers. He's not fucking scared, man. He's like, I went in the danger bu- zone. Buckle up, boys. Well, I then what's the uh, Tamafuji's like, why do you keep calling me Goose, man? No, yeah. like, it's all good. <laughs> Stop. Are you telling me that Top Gun was based off this incident? I'm telling you, loosely. I, we don't Very know what loosely, it wasn't. loosely yeah. based, perhaps. <laughs> so they have an exchange with uh, Anchorage ATC, and uh, ATC is like asking them to do a couple things. You know, take a quick survey of what's going on. So they're asking them, like, what are the what are the cloud conditions? That's the first thing they're asking. Right. Uh, what does it look like up there? And so uh, Teruchi said they they looked around and it, like it was pretty much clear. Like there there were some light wispy clouds below them. Um, nothing really that could have been, uh, considered like heavy cloud cover or anything like that. Nothing that you could mistake for moving craft left to right stacking with a glowing radiation coming off them. Right. And so now the ground radar, uh, this kind of gets mixed up because when I went through the research for this one, it, it there was stuff where the, the ground radar from Anchorage ATC didn't pick anything up. But then there's also reports that they, they definitely did pick something up, but it wasn't, in, they couldn't, they didn't pick anything up in front of the aircraft. They picked something up with like a signal. And um, uh, you can find videos of this where one of the FAA officials who investigated it, like spotted, like you, you can definitely see it. There's like a, the transponder, like watching on a radar screen, you can see the transponder signal of 
J A L one six two eight, like going, and then you see something pop up behind it, not in front of it, but behind it. So they pick up something behind it, but they're not confirming that there's something in front of the craft. So right, that kind of freaks everybody out for a little minute. So they're picking up something, but they don't know what it is. And like we said, they they contacted the closest uh, Air Force base at this point, and that's Elfin Elmendorf. Elmendorf Air Force. Yeah. Is that in fucking Midgard? Yeah, where are we here? <laughs> uh, so they they contact them and they ask them, like, uh, you know, the Elmendorf Regional Operation Control Center, <laughs> if they were had any aircraft deployed at that point. And they said, no, we don't have anything up there at any point. And so around um, 5.25 p.m., uh, Anchorage ATC requests that they, you know, put up their, let's call it the rock. It's a rock radar. Uh, the rock radar. And they reported uh, receiving a surge primary can return. So this was some type of signal. A surge primary's return is a radar echo without a corresponding transponder signal. So it's something, but it's definitely, it's not a plane because it, or it's a plane without a transponder, which is, it's a UFO. Unlikely. It's a UFO. UFO. So, so they yeah. they did. I read that too. And I didn't. I wasn't sure what that was. But thanks for clarifying. So they did pick up something. They just, it had no no signal. So they didn't know what it was. But they did. They did have evidence there was something in the sky. Right. So Elmendorf and now the <laughs> and you can't eight, take you know, Elmendorf. ATC have picked something up, and then Teruuchi actually. <laughs> Uh, utilized his aircraft's digital weather radar to try to get an image of the object. And he said that he kind of he, he eyeballed it. And I don't know how how difficult that is, but he kind of eyeballed where the objects were, uh, made an estimate, pointed their digital radar at it. And he his radar picked up something as well. And it was some type of large object about seven or eight miles at the 10 o'clock position from their aircraft. So n- not not these first two. There was something else he's picking up. Well, it, it's just another radar just another signal, signal of something. So it's this thing was at the 10 o'clock position. So seven to eight miles. So it'd still be kind of in front of him. Or you like, can hear you can hear the like the tapes of them talking. And at this point, when he he's like he's picking it up and he's saying to ATC that like uh it's it's a quite it's quite big. It's quite yeah. whatever it is. It, this is <laughs> quite uh, big. It's quite big. Like they're like, how big? He's like, oh, oh, quite big. Big. And it was like from like their guesses, like whatever they were picking up was like double the size of their cargo plane. Right. And so Teriuchi and his crew are now approaching the city of Fairbanks where they had switched off their instrument lights because they didn't want them interfering with the kind of they could see the lights of the city and then they could get a better kind of idea of what they were looking at out their windows. And this is when, yeah, Teriuchi has his best look of this craft because he said that it was on his side, like so the left side of the aircraft and just kind of like out to the side. Um probably about the nine o'clock, 10 o'clock position pacing them was this enormous object. And <laughs> yeah. from his quote, like he, he goes on record at saying this thing is probably the size of like an aircraft carrier. Yeah. It's funny because you know what I mean? Like I, you don't want to get too far into fucking stereotypes, but you know, you like to think of Japanese people as very reserved and like polite. 
get on the microphone and like, uh, 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 sumimasen. Uh, okay, uh, big, uh, planet to, uh, very big. You know, people are like, yeah, like, what do you mean, man? Like, no, no, he's, he's big. No, it's the size of a fucking planet. Yeah. Like, he's, like, yeah, they're is, very conservative. Well, like, they're, you know what I mean? Like, you don't want to play into that fucking role, but you can see him being like, uh, you know, sumimasen, excuse me. It's quite big. Quite yeah, big. It, yeah, it's, it's very large. Yeah, when, when they're on the radio and you listen to the tapes, like, they're, I mean, definitely English is not their first language. And the pilots are describing what they're seeing or they're like, they're, they're trying very hard to impress upon ground control. Like there's something up here. Like, can you guys get a picture of it or get something like, we don't know what it is, you know? And even while they were up there, when this, when this craft came out and these lights were appearing in front of them, they actually tried to take a picture of it. The crew in the cabin actually tried to take pictures of this thing. They both had cameras. Apparently, Teruchi had like a new camera and didn't know how to work well, it. For so like 1980, get... what is it, 1986? 19... Yeah. One of those like... <laughs> Probably had a better time fucking sketching with an etch a sketch and using. So he couldn't. He couldn't do it. And then I think um, Terry uh, Tamafuji also attempted to get a photo as well. But his camera, he couldn't. Like he was having problems with his autofocus, is what they reported. So he couldn't get a, a a clear photo or couldn't get a photo at all or gave up trying to take a photo. Which I was like, I would have taken a blur, blurry photo anyways. Like who gives a shit? Like at this point, just take I mean, like a hundred. You might get one. You might get lucky on one. Yeah, but these uh, but these guys are also seasoned pilots, so they they're just trying to figure out what this thing is, and they're I mean they're also up in the air, so yeah. I mean these guys sound like consummate professionals, and they're just like okay, well we don't want to crash the plane, we don't want to crash into anybody, let's figure out what this is, so th- and kind of get us landed before they're like- we start freaking out. <laughs> I'm they, sure. So they request ATC, they're like, hey, listen, we're gonna change our heading a little bit. We just want to get clear of this object. So we're going to change our heading, you know, swing, swing out right a little bit. Uh, and they're like, yeah, do it. Like pull away from this object. And as they do that, this object just, it just, just follows banks them. with them. Just Jesus. perfectly banks with them. And they're just like, uh, yes, yeah, still here. Like okay. all, it's all, all I, good. <laughs> I got, I got a couple of questions. So initially there's the two objects. They're in front of yeah. them. They irradiate them. Where, because he actually he has a sketch of them where he thinks they are is they they're like have like a square like a square they look square to him these two right, objects yeah but then so these objects do they take off or they just get ahead of him before they see the third like what he describes it as like a mothership like a gigantic right. flying craft yeah so I think the the ones that he saw the very first one are like yeah when he draws them they're either cylindrical or they look like kind of like panels of lights well yeah um, yeah from the from he, the, he, the, he doesn't really say exactly what they are but from the back they look like they have a square like like a square they look square from the back is what he says in his sketches yeah. like to uh so those lights like actually dropped i think they dropped off at some point like they dropped out of sight like his direct you know his direct line of sight or whatever and then that's when the other one kind of popped up from behind him from behind the craft or on his side so you got like these two first two are like the scout ships and then they drop off and then because we don't know what happens to this, these two crafts. So they, they either like rejoin or they, they're off. But now we have a aircraft carrier sized flying craft shadowing these dudes. Right. So like Braden said that they they attempted now to take like evasive action of some type because they were afraid that either this thing was going to crash into them or they're going to crash into it. So they performed a, 40, a 45 degree turn. Then they end up like 
doing an entire 360 degree turn just trying to trying everything this thing i'm telling you dude kenny loggins was playing in his head he knew what was he's going like on. He was, he's like i'm gonna do a barrel roll next <laughs> yeah man uh but i mean they didn't go that far but uh so after and the like plane a full 360 there, in these things it, it takes a while like it's a we're big not talking, arc. it's like yeah. it's not like a quick u-turn in a car this is like a 10 minute maneuver yeah so after they came out of this turn, uh, they were still at 31,000 feet, and this object was still following them. Um, so now, at this point, uh, Anchorage Air Traffic Control at 5.40 p.m. Uh, had a United Airlines passenger jet that had departed from Anchorage and was heading towards Fairbanks. So they were on, you know, they, they were heading in the same general direction towards uh, JAL's 1628. And so since they were going to pass pretty relatively closely uh anchorage atc asked if the uh the pilot would try to confirm what uh what jal 1628 was seeing well even before this didn't they ask they're like hey we're we're gonna we're gonna request some military support which was denied by them well uh yeah there's there's also a report that they asked um teruchi and them the 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 crew if they wanted military intervention because we didn't really know what that was going on. And I think Terahuchi and them declined it. Uh, there's some Terahuchi's got it handled, man. Jesus. Well, there, there's me? also some mention of Terahuchi being familiar with another UFO incident where a pilot, I think it's, is it the mantle incident? Yeah. The mantel UFO is the mantel incident in, uh, where uh, in Kentucky in 1948, Right. So like uh, at that incident, it was like a pilot in a P-51 Mustang or such uh, kind of went balls out trying to catch a UFO, ended up uh, climbing too high, too fast, uh, pretty much knocked out, blacked out because of oxygen deprivation and then crashed his plane. So, oh, fuck. So, yeah, that's one. I guess that's probably one of the only recorded deaths due to by UFO <laughs> due to UFO indirect death due to yeah. UFO. So. Yeah, so he was didn't want that to happen. Well, and the other issue was is that while we know it was a like a plane crash in the Mantel uh, Mantel incident, a lot of people, you know, the story was going around that it was like a hostile UFO, and that kind of took the sensation sensationalized the story about him being, you know, the death being attributed to a hostile uh, UFO. So I think that weighed heavy on people worried about like these things could turn hostile in the skies. Right. So yeah, and I'm sure Teruchi was saying like, well, this thing hasn't really exhibited any hostile action. It hasn't really done anything. So don't send anything up here. I mean, it's just the size of an aircraft carrier in the sky to our left. No big deal. Why? Well, my feeling is if Teruchi is familiar with the Mantelli <laughs> incident, I mean, he's probably familiar with some type of you know, whether it's like science fiction or something like that. So it's like you don't want to send jets up there to fire rockets at a giant aircraft carrier sized ship and then piss it off. Yeah, <laughs> true. I you're, guess. Like you're heavily vulnerable in this situation. Or he's you're, probably thinking he's like, what would you even do? He's a pretty you you send the, He's yeah. familiar with if he's a jet, a jet fighter, former jet fighter pilot. He's like, you could send those guys up here. Fuck what they do. I mean, just paste the object. It's like, what's what we're doing right now? Maybe yep. we just make things worse. We've got this under control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess so. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. If like, if there's no, if it's, it looks to be just shadowing you, whatever it is. So I guess, yeah, yeah. To, to call in like 
to call in a military jet, yeah, might might trigger something. So when the UA flight gets within about 25 miles, uh, the pilot of the UA craft asked uh, Anchorage ATC to have JALs 1628 flash their lights so he can make sure like that's what we're seeing. We're seeing <laughs> that's what you. You, everyone knows if someone, if someone brake checks you, you fucking high beam them. Damn, damn right. <laughs> right. And so when the planes actually approached within 12 miles of each other, the UA pilot got eyes on JAL 1628 and he reported seeing just their aircraft and nothing else. So they didn't they didn't get a glimpse of anything or anything on radar at that point? No, seemingly within that time between when the UA got up there and when they got to it, the craft had kind of disappeared uh, or kind of fell off the back of uh, 1628 and then out of sight and was gone. So do we know for sure that uh, uh, 1628 wasn't seeing this still when they when the other crew? They, did, they didn't see it. They didn't see it. They didn't yeah, but what I'm wondering, like the Japanese plane, like the air. No, the because air at, the, at that point, the objects in front had disappeared, and there was just the object tailing them, so they couldn't okay. really see it. That's why they requested so they don't know another. If it was there or not? Yeah, that's right. why they requested another airline to come up and take a peek. Right. So then, even after that, at 5:51 p.m., Anchorage ATC also requested there was actually a military flight, a totem flight. Uh, it's like a tactical something up. Operations, something, something, something flight uh, to fly towards 1628 and take another look and, and just can verify what the UA had said. And they didn't see anything either. They just saw JAL 1628 by itself, nothing else. So by this time, whatever object they were seeing had changed course or vanished or whatever, it's gone. Yeah. At this time. Yep. And then JL1628 proceeded on to Anchorage and landed at 6.20 p.m. without any further incident. Fuck. So you see, starts with two UFOs seeming to follow you and then proceed to like then a, pace a you from in front. One. So the two are pacing you and then a, they disappear off and then a massive seeming... What he I like how he describes it as like, like a, a aircraft carrier or a mothership. Yeah, this is like a 20, 30 minute incident, which is pretty long, uh, consider is relatively long considering these things. Because most of the time, I think you kind of get pies and say, oh, we saw something like we saw uh, there's something out there, like maybe like a light and it's gone, like a flash and it's gone. It's something incident. But actually having a craft pace your plane or having something pace your plane for 20 minutes or something like that is pretty nuts. Well, that's like, why that's, this case is really cool because usually yeah usually it's like a yeah you see the orb or you see whatever for a brief time usually you don't even have time to take a picture or like make a sketch and it's gone and then it's just a like a MUFON encounter and it never gets investigated because there's no yeah no data but this I'm, one yeah it was there any wine missing well that's what <laughs> yeah. like that's what i want to know first of all like you say it's pacing but not only is it pacing but it's stalking it it's like it's stalking it's fucking prey how do we know that it's really gold that these fucking aliens are after to power their shit? Maybe it's wine. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's wine. Maybe they're after that fucking sweet, sweet red nectar. He actually made the joke too, saying they may, maybe they were after the wine because it, it was, I guess, a really high end wine from Paris, like a top end wine. So I mean, it's the one flight flying that wine. Yeah, it was probably really good wine because it's just that that flight was only for that just, shipment of wine. So there's like thousands <laughs> of cases of wines on this. 
jumbo jet. So we also get a great description and all this stuff that the reason we have so many records and we have a really great documentation of this sighting is because Terauchi filed an official report with the FAA. Like they actually had people out there at Anchorage debriefing him about what he saw because you don't just you don't just get on the radio and you have a 30 minute conversation with air traffic control about something following your plane in the u.s airspace and nobody's going to talk to you after that because it's fucking once they got him down there they had him go through in detail about what he had saw like they had him sit down in a room uh, i can't remember the first person who's talking to him but they they had a full investigation done uh that didn't actually come to a conclusion, didn't even release a statement until March 5th. Well, they probably were like, listen, let's keep this between us. We're going to work on this. We'll figure it out. Let's keep this on the DL. No big deal. What's the first thing Teruchi does when he gets back to Japan? <laughs> fucking sings. Oh, man, does he sing like a fucking canary? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the first FAA officials to talk to him said uh, it was his impression that Teruchi and the crew were genuine. They were genuine in there and what they had experienced. Like they had seen something. They were like the two, the, the flight engineer and the co-pilot, he said, seemed to be in shock. Teruchi, whether it's, you know, a, a product of his uh, training or just experience and flying, he was still uh. scared, but he was able to recall like what he saw, but there was definite fear in what he was describing. And so he had, they had him, put out the like he had made multiple drawings and diagrams of what they saw from he did from what i understand terahuchi was the one that did the majority of the statements and, yes you know what i mean like the the, the two co-pilots or whatever you want to call them didn't really have many official statements it was mostly no. terahuchi yeah yeah most of the, most of the stuff that we get the drawings the descriptions all those pretty much come from Teruchi. And then the other guys kind of confirm bits and pieces about what they saw. I mean, especially about the lights. I think uh, like uh, Tsukuba was sitting behind like uh, Tamifuji in the cockpit. So he couldn't really see 100% what was in front of him. Tamifuji was also sitting there. They just kept telling him to get back. (laughs) Get back. Go get more wine. Come on. Give me another bottle. Yeah. So they, uh, they pretty much just confirmed that they, saw but i think primarily Teriuchi was the one who cited the large craft because it was on his side yeah it was like he was the, he was really the one who had the best look because it was yeah it was on it was like down to the left so his co-pilot and the third the third guy in the cockpit didn't really have a good look they were probably trying to peer around him but obviously the guy right. he's still trying to fly a plane so you can't crawl over him <laughs> look out the window so yeah all the drawings and stuff and most of the statements are from him from him yeah. um i was just gonna say like before that like the investigation, like, because this is like, we're at, what was this? Eight, we're at 86? 87. Yeah. 80, this one's 86, Six. November 17th, 86. 86. So we're still like, this is end Cold War, right? Very close end. Very to close Cold to War. the end. Like the Soviet Union would probably fall within like another, is it 87? 87, 88. When the wall come down, my history is bad. But so this is still like, we're still Cold War. So anything, especially in, in, Ala- in Alaska, so close to this, like uh, USSR. Like yeah. Soviet Union was in like death that. throes at this point. Like it was still like I think very much uh, Gorbachev and them were kind of like things were slowing down at this point. But it still was. Yeah, we were still in Cold War. Um, this was taken very seriously because even if you are in, you know, 
Soviet Union at this point is probably in estimates of U.S. intelligence is it's it's not going to last very much longer. You still don't want them being like, OK, maybe our intelligence was bad and now they're flying crazy aircraft or there's some other threat. Like one that, last ditch effort, right? Like of a failing their failing state. Like, OK, we can get like so you'd still be a high on guard, like for anything, especially on over yeah. in U.S. airspace. Maybe they took a took a page from Hitler. Wanted to round up all his best fucking scientists and shit like that as a last ditch effort to, you know what I mean, turn the tides. And maybe they had some wacky Russian scientists that were able to create this type of technology. There we go. And and maybe they're after that plane because they that wine was precious as well. Russian go. Russians love to drink. Hey, listen, we're we're taking it. We're taking their word that there was fucking wine on the board. I don't know. It's yeah. Maybe there was more precious cargo on board. I, I didn't. They don't didn't see us. the manifest of that shipment. Maybe it was a airplane full of sexy convicts wearing wife beaters and hair blowing through their fucking, you know what I mean? The wind blowing through their hair. The aliens need Nicolas Cage. Gotcha. This was the story of Con Air, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. That's where they got it from. You could have Braden. Braden was playing Thickless Cage over there. Look at him. <laughs> Right? That's pretty, yeah. Uh, Thickless good cage is pretty, yeah. Thickless pretty cage. That's you. That's good. That's good. That hair got, slicked back. Got it's the same look. hairline. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, this case file, I mean, there, there's a lot of evidence and a lot, of stuff, a lot more stuff to go through on the conclusions here, but uh, we're going to take a quick beer break. and we'll Before be... we do, every time someone says Terahuchi, I think of that old Alan Jackson song. <laughs> Way down yonder on the chair. Terahuchi. <laughs> it gets harder than a hoochie coochie. <laughs> Right. It's harder than time. a Tamafuji. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, on that note, okay, <laughs> definitely a beer time. Here, we'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. Have you ever felt like you needed something a little darker than whale noises or counting sheep to unwind at the end of the day? Maybe you've realized horror itself can be a strange but relaxing escape from reality. Every week, I bring to you a myriad of bone-chilling tales from 19th century dusty tomes to modern up-and-coming authors to truer spooky tales like reddit mysteries and time slips all accompanied by a gentle voice and ambient music and sounds so that you feel immersed and lost in your own personal horror story you can find scare you to sleep exclusively on spotify so grab some earbuds a cozy corner and join me, Shelby Scott, every Thursday, and let's get unsettled together. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. So Teruchi files their report with the FAA, and they go into full investigation mode, and they make this big deal about it, since, like we said, it's the end of the Cold War. Need to find out what exactly happened. And so from the time that this happened, actually Philip class, if you guys remember him, yep. Uh, pretty big skeptical investigator. You know, I kind of thought he was cool at first. Now I'm like, this guy's kind of sounds like an asshole. He hates UFOs pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think them. that, that pretty much just seems to describe him <laughs> because, um, he, he conducted an investigation into the incident on behalf of the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. 
So prior to the FAA uh, releasing their official statement, he released a couple, like more than one uh, statement on January 22nd was his first one. And he concluded that the occurrence was the crew. The fr- This is the first one. He says that the crew uh, misidentified Jupiter oh, and Mars. Oh, my God. Which are in this, which were in the sky that night, and un, and documented to be unusually bright at that time. Imagine being the pilots and being told like, "Yeah, it was just a couple planets, idiots." Just two stationary planets in the horizon, you mistaked for them yeah. following, shadowing you, and then blasting energy through your cockpit windshield, and then flying and like, away. What about them on radar? You're like, yeah, we picked them up on radar too. Two planets. And I'm pretty sure, like, pretty quickly, uh, other, you know, skeptics and, and or people who were also looking into the case quickly blasted that apart because they said, no, Jupiter and Mars are on the, the opposite side of where the aircraft was. They're in the opposite side of the sky that from the direction that direction the airplane going. was traveling. So there's no way that it would just be pacing them. And then they would also, like, throughout their maneuvers that they made in the sky, the 45-degree turn, the three hundred full 360 that they did, there's no way that the, you would go and misidentify two planets, you know. <laughs> what? Sky, you know, bodies <laughs> in the sky. Like, there's well, no I, way you would do that. Let's say, let's say... Just some something happened where okay, they this was an atmospheric phenomenon. That sure the two small lights. What about the fucking mothership? Right. It's a shadowing mothership. So later, uh, that committee for scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal would offer a second explanation. Uh, they made another conclusion that the it was light reflecting off clouds of ice crystals. So there we go. Atmosphere, which, which is a real phenomenon that yeah. does happen. That's how you get like, isn't it how you get like those uh, light pillars and things like that? I believe those are also kind of caused by certain weather conditions that involve ice crystals. Yeah, and, and you get those like, rings or it's funny rings around the moon and shit. Mm-hmm. The amount of like the rarity, the rarity of all these events to happen. Like, OK, so for that to happen, it's super rare. But that's obviously what these guys seen. We hear about fucking thousands of UFO sightings that they attribute to these like one in a fucking five million chance weather phenomenons and stuff like that. It just doesn't fucking add up. Doesn't at all. Well, and these these are like season. This isn't a novice pilot. This is like a seasoned pilot. He'd be making this report every time he saw a star in the sky if that was the case. Yeah, half an hour. And then also, a lot of people said that would be impossible for them to to make that mistake because of the altitude of the plane at 30,000 feet, 30, 30 to 35,000 feet where they were traveling. There's no way that you would have ice crystals up that far reflecting light, it, it, the type of intensity and the it, the patterns that they were doing. This is just that that is something that is wouldn't happen. Yes, the occurrence is exceedingly rare and you also would not see anything that high up. Well, at the same time, so we're in November in in Alaska, so it's dark, right? Yeah, it's dark. Like it's pitch black at this time. We're at, what, 5 o'clock, the encounters to 5.09, it starts. So It's probably, if it's not pitch black, it's getting dark. No, like, because you're way up there. Like, you're, yeah. like, here in Kelowna, yeah, it's probably not dark yet, but, like, if you're that far north in winter, like, you're almost at the 30 days of night, like, in the Arctic Circle, that far up. So, yeah, I, I, I was, I said that because, like, I could see if it was like maybe at sunset, like a, you know, 
some type of crazy sunset phenomena or something, but it seems like it would already be too dark for that. So, so the FAA, when they released their final report, it was a little bit strange because when they released their report, the only thing that they really remarked on was the radar signatures of the planes. They didn't directly address the the pilots, you know, physically seeing these craft and what they described seeing, but they actually just addressed the the radar signatures that they had picked up from ground radar and their explanation that it was a split radar return from the JAL flights. It was kind of like an echo or something like that. So they were seeing two things, but it was actually just one. And that what, that, what causes a split radar return? Is that an atmospheric thing as well? Or I couldn't exactly, I'm not a radar technician. So yeah. I, I kind of <laughs> looked briefly into as it. As I want to be. Didn't really or, know. But yeah, it's kind of hard. To, I tried to look that up and I tried to figure out what that was, but it was a little bit, Difficult for me to figure out what a radar split. I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that can cause, uh, from from what I was looking at, there's a lot of things that can cause interference with radar or cause these kinds of occurrences where you get double images or, or things of that sort. But that was pretty much their their conclusion was that the, the radar signatures that they were picking up was just JL both times. That was it. They didn't. That was their explanation. That is what they saw, but they didn't address, you know, the mothership, the, the mothership, mothership. <laughs> or the the lights changing, the the formation shifting lights, any of that stuff. I believe that it was just that is what they addressed. They just went with the simplest, most straightforward answer. Like it must have been a radar split because that's the only thing that makes sense to us. So therefore, but yeah, and that's that's only the only real hard data they had. So I think that's kind of like was also part of the explanation is that we can't really speak to because if you're you know you're a federal organization you're not going to go out and just be like okay well it might have been this They're like this from the information that we do have this is the conclusion we came to based off of that that you know the analysis of that information that we have hard copies of and whatever right. so but the thing is, prior to this, or at least I think a little bit before this, you had FAA's Alaskan region consult uh, consult with John Callahan, who is the FAA division chief of the Accidents and Investigations Branch. So John Callahan, uh, he didn't really have any knowledge of this when they talked to him. He didn't really had heard about this thing before, but he had gotten... You know, he got his hands on the on the radar and the, the the radar videos, the radar tapes that they had, and then the also the drawings and the reports that Teruchi and his crew had made when they had got when they had landed in Anchorage. Right. So they took the radar tapes, they transcribed the interviews, and they kind of put together a presentation uh, because they were invited. I think they were invited to, um, or they were to, invited to send all of this information to FAA in Washington for review. And then Callahan actually had to go to DC and have a meeting with the officials. And then in this meeting, he said, or he's gone on record saying that this was also attended by representatives from the FBI, CIA, and even President Reagan's scientific study team and among other people. Well, so and like Reagan the was FAA like a, weren't the only people in the room. Reagan was a huge UFO guy. Well, he he didn't he claim to have a few encounters himself. Yeah, he loved UFOs. I mean, Star Wars was his their kind of thing for well, a while. It, not, well, not the President Reagan created Star Wars. What? 
<laughs> well, let's start with it. Uh, uh, lasers in space program. Not well, the, yeah, well, he's Skywalker. he's famous for that speech saying, like, what would bring us more together than a force from outside our planet or whatever he says, yeah. like that famous speech about pretty much saying, like, if aliens came, we'd all be friends. So everyone's like, well, he must know something then. But yeah, he was always and interested. So, so. <laughs> Yeah, and Callahan, uh, his experience with this is he found it quite shocking when one of the officials, after reviewing, thoroughly reviewing multiple times, having them go through the presentation of this information, these tapes and watching and hearing the interviews, someone specifically spoke to him and, and the people that he was with, his team, and said, this event never happened. And we were never here. <laughs> then they threw down some smoke bombs and peace. Have a look into this uh, silver pen thing here. Just look right, right there. And that little flash. Fucking well, he was saying officials from from you know it was either FBI, CIA, or you know the Presidential Scientific Study Team. They took everything from in that meeting that they had brought to that meeting. They took everything. They took the drawings. They took the the recordings. They took the radar tapes. Everything. They took all that stuff. And the only reason that we do have, you know, you can find the pictures online. You can, um, you know, you have these. Uh, Callahan has gone on. If you look it up, he was on an episode of Unexplained Files. Yep. From the Science Channel, I think. He was on the Science yeah. Channel. Yeah. Uh, with all of his uh, documentation from the event, like he kept copies of everything. I guess he was just one of those kinds of people. So luckily, uh, he had all of those things and he does a pretty uh, great or pretty good breakdown of the thing. I don't know if you can find the clip on YouTube or something like that, but he does an actual breakdown of the radar tape. Um, visually, you can watch it. And he's like, this is this is the transponder signal we have from JL1628. It's here, 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 and then something pops up behind it here. And it's, very, it's really visible. Like, you can see it. It's not this straight, identifiable uh, line of, like, the transponder signal. It's this little dot. It's like a little kind of little bit of undefined dot that pops up right behind it. And follows it for a while and just like, okay, that is something. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can find that. We, and I forgot to pull it up while we were talking about the mothership, but actually Terahuchi drew, like, drew what he thought the mothership looked like. So I, I'll, so the only thing I'm going to pull up on the stream, you can find the rest if you go search for the case. Hashtag look it up. Look it up. So if you're watching the stream, it looks like a giant... <laughs> It looks like Jup it looks like Saturn or Jupiter or both together. <laughs> it's a it's a saucer shape, but it's got like very pronounced like top and bottom like like the domes, like more than usual. And I guess this thing's the size of an aircraft carrier. So yeah, it's uh, I think either in a couple of drawings they have like a com a comparison of the size of the seven or what the estimated size of like the the craft and the 747 like right next to each other would be and it's from Teruchi's descriptions and and his account this thing is huge it's it's giant it's really big yeah then it's actually in this picture it's so small though that you can't really see it so if you're looking at the front of the ship he drew a tiny little aircraft does my cursor come on the screen? I don't think so. Search for that. It's a giant dome UFO, pretty much. So yeah, this huge thing, and that's pretty much, you know, what all of you, what we've heard about it. This is all the information that we have from it. So you have these radar signatures. You have the descriptions that Teriuchi and the crew gave, and that's pretty much all you have. And it's always been a kind of. I mean, this is probably one of the. I know I've seen it on a bunch of. 
uh, it pops up all the time on the UFO ones because it is it is seriously one of the best documented because you have this very established, uh, well sectioned off timeline of what happened. You know, th- there wasn't any radio contact breaking. Like they switched channels at one time because there was some radio interference between the ground control and JL one six two eight, but you get this a very clear picture of what happened and you have a very, you know, very definite timeline. 30 minutes is a long time. And I, I'm not really off the top of my head. I I can't really think of any UFO encounters that lasted that long, like single singular events that lasted that long. Like continuously, like a lot of times the event happens, there's missing time and the people come back. It's three hours later, but the actual encounter does not happen like that. So yeah, it's pretty cool right. that way. Another thing too, like Teruchi, when he went back to Japan, like he really wanted to bring attention to this. He, you know what I mean? He went to the newspaper, everything like that to try and like let it make everybody aware of what he saw. And he ended up losing his job. Right. He got ground. Well, he got grounded. They took him oh, off the so flights they, and they put they him in Take away his job. TV privileges. No more, no more video games. <laughs> we don't sit in his room. Like, right. No more Nintendo. know the extent of this grounding, Dan. <laughs> no more Nintendos. They took away his Game Boy. Paper pushing. Uh, Pokemon cards, all that shit. So, they, so after he tells his story, they ground him onto a desk job. Indefinitely. Right. But I mean, we heard about this. We, you know, this isn't the first time we heard about pilots like not speaking up when they see stuff in fear of this exact scenario yeah right so i mean they put him on a desk job i believe he did at one point like he either appealed or at some point he did get back in the air at some point like towards the end of his career so he flew for a couple more years and then he retired is there Um, like are you sure though like because it wasn't like you think back to like foo fighters wasn't foo fighters created in like world war ii because of the amount of ufos that were witnessed by pilots and stuff like that like i don't think this is that abnormal for them to see something they couldn't explain and then report it well yeah foo fighters were like those glowing orange orbs that were in like they seen them in the dog fights and stuff yeah but just like all i'm saying is like this is definitely not it's not that rare for somebody a pilot to see something i you know what i mean that they haven't fuck they can't they don't have anything to explain it or you know what i mean right well it's it not as. unusual for this, them to see something they can't explain but i think it's probably a little bit more rare to see them actually file like a real report because i'm pretty sure they probably asked her like do you want to you sure go on record yeah that's what you're saying because i mean for them they probably didn't even really have to say anything they probably could just went through the radar stuff left that as it is and being like okay you know but terry was uh, when he was a from kind of Derry, I think his, his last name was Derry. For one of the first FAA officials to talk with Teruchi said that you know he was really, he was really excited, not excited, but he was really um, eager to tell what he saw. Okay. So, but I also think that yeah, like Braden said, this is something that pilots and a lot of pilots do for a while. It's 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 now I believe because we've you know we've come so far and you have the atip stuff which is i think was just the tip of the iceberg but the united states navy and armed forces have kind of like restructured their guidelines into to the uh in reference to the reporting of ufos or some you know air un, <laughs> unidentified aerial phenomenon that happens up there and so pilots can kind of feel safer in reporting these things and then not be so worried about what's going to happen to them like okay it's like either well you're crazy or we can't have you up there because you're seeing things that aren't there 
or we can't yeah. tell that we can't back it up. So, I mean, it could be anything and they could ground you on medical reasons being like you could whatever, but make a case for that. But yeah, I think that there are a lot of pilots who are hesitant to go on the official record saying that they saw something. And that's why you don't get a lot of these. But yeah, I think as you said, Dan, like I think the, the, as the years go by, you're going to hear more and more stories of like, you know, Commander, Commander David Fravor and like the Tic Tac and the Gimbal and all those like newer ones that are slowly being released because of all these programs. And it's so much more talked about nowadays. Yeah. That I think you'll, we will see like, uh, because there's that one that ha- in February, right? Well, we were maybe going to get into it, but I'm not sure. But there was one in February where the pilot was like, he radios down. And he's like, yeah, something, uh, I hate to say this, looks like a cigar, like a cigar-shaped c- cylindrical object just shot over the head. So like it does happen. Yeah. And, and one of the points that Philip Class did try to make or kind of either, at least take aim at uh, Teruchi's credibility was that he spoke to the point that Teruchi was a or he called them like a serial UFO spotter because he had reported sighting UFOs previously on a couple of occasions, several and occasions. on his next and on his next flight. After and the that. following flight. Yeah. So the, fo- the flight right after, like within a month, he reported another one. But when they gave an, an explanation for that, he accepted it and was like, okay, uh, I agree. That probably was Well, you'd be on edge too, though. You'd be on edge. Like, you'd be like, y- you would be a little nervous. I Like, I can imagine, like, you know, all of a sudden, if, my, for good reason. if I got paced in my car for 30 minutes, like, driving in the, like, you know, somewhere secluded, the next time I'm in my car, I'm going to be looking for everything, every little thing. Yeah, so you're more, you'd probably be more, like, likely to... <laughs> see something that you're like, oh, that was a UFO. And they're like, no, actually it was this. You're like, okay, maybe it was. Okay. Well, yeah, his, his acceptance of the, of the explanation or the, you know, mundane explanation for what was going on. I mean, I think that speaks to some of his character because it's like, dude, I saw something crazy up there. I'm just trying to tell you guys about it. You got something up there in the fucking air, giant aircraft carrier sized ball of lights. Uh, you guys should know about it and and look that up. And I don't want to fly. You know, there's going to be other planes flying around there. So that I mean, I can't. I you know, I'm not directly in Terucci's head, so I can't really speak to what his his whole attitude was. But I'm I'm sure he was probably thinking about you know his fellow pilots up there flying through this this air corridor and being like, if something's up there, like you need to figure out what it is and tell other pilots about it. So you know, yeah, if it was like a threat, an aerial threat or potential threat. Yeah, you'd or just something up there that you could potentially crash into, whether it's a you know a giant fucking balloon or whatever. You know, there's something out there. <laughs> now, what a, did he ever say? I couldn't really like. When did the when did the mothership like the giant craft just disappear? Did it like seem to like just he looked it was there and he looked again it was gone or did it slowly di- dissipate? Or I think like, it slowly dropped off behind them, like it kind of like lost speed or whatever, and then kind of drifted off back and then kind of and then they just lost sight of it because they couldn't look behind them or anything really. So it just like it drifted out of sight out the back and then was gone when, you know, at least when UA before the next flight, before the check flight. Yeah. All right. So it's almost like if that was an intelligent craft, like it, maybe it knew it was being looked for at that point. And it's like, then it's pieced out, just dropped off, dropped off far, far enough out of sight. And then, off. Some reports I found that like I wasn't sure if they were substantiated or not, but like reports came afterwards that perhaps this object was seen pacing that 
the flight that was sent uh, out to take a peek and couldn't see anything, that there was some maybe radar activity behind that flight afterwards. I didn't find too much on that. I tried to look more into it. I wasn't sure if that was just like you know, people taking liberties with the stories, but definitely not a lot of information on that I found. The ATT word of the night is paste. If you guys haven't caught that yeah. yet, it is paste. If it pa- paste, man. Yeah. If, you're, if you're getting paste, be careful. Paste. Uh... <laughs> um, but getting into theories of potentially what it was, like I, I actually really liked Andrew when you were touching on that. Like maybe the Russians have had a craft. That's where I was kind of leaning to because, um, as a possibility, um, I'm definitely on the side of UFO and aliens. That's what this was. But, um, you know, Annie Jacobs, I think it's Jacobs or Jacobson, wrote Area 51. And her theory was that the Russians, when we were taking all the V2 rocket engineers, Russia was snatching up um, like aerospace engineers. And that they actually, and she had always said that Roswell was a crashed Russian um, craft. Like based um, on so, Nazi, like the Nazi bell or something or, or who knows? She's just like a highly advanced, something that like it's, it's way, they, she basically says that the Russians have their capabilities of like aerospace are decades ahead of us, if not a hundred years ahead of us. And that, you know, potentially at this time, like maybe that's what you're exactly right. This is a last diff, ditch effort. They've made a couple of these things, they're flying them, but it's just, you know, the cost of maybe keeping them up and going was too much at the time. But that's exactly what they are. We're some sort of spy craft for the Russians, right? It would make, like, when you look at the aerospace and, like, where it is, like, it would make sense that if there was Russian running operations, like, potentially they it would be in that area. It would be an easy place for them to kind of sh- shoot in, take some peek at stuff, see how, you know, capable their craft are against, you know, uh, military radar and stuff like that, and then peace back to Russia. Okay. I mean, so my theory, I think, would be, so if this is a like a UFO, like an ET craft, it almost seemed like they were just like, they were studying the craft, like the airplane. Like they were just, they were just pacing it. They get, they get out in front of it. Those two craft disappear. They were like the scouts. They either go back to the mothership or they, wherever they go, the mother, mothership comes up because it has like the data of it and it's just it just seems to do the same thing just like follow them in a 360 and then as soon as it finds out let's say that they're looking for it that they're trying to bounce new radar send new crafts up it just kind of just takes off it almost seems intelligent do i the one thing i don't quite agree with uh tara tara Huchi is the size of the craft it just seems of all the ufos we've ever talked about when you look at his picture and it shows the size of a 747, at the time, this got to be one, that, like, is it not the biggest jet, commercial jet? Jumbo? Oh, yeah. Probably. Biggest, is not one of the biggest. Huge jet. And then it looks like the jet is like a 120th size of the craft he describes. Yeah, so, it's humongous. So I I think, in my mind, I think maybe he, the imagination of the size might have been overstated, perhaps. But it seems like it's it it seems genuine that they seen something and it was a thirty minute encounter. Well, it's it's like it's it's backed up by radar, which is the huge thing, right? Like it's kind of other though, right? people are picking stuff up, Anom- anomalies. Let's say that are right. picking up anom- anomalies. So yeah, so I think 
my theory would be it was an ET, like some type of just like, because I always like, I like the theory of ETs, like they're just scientists. If they did stumble upon this planet full of life, they're just observing and then they, they, maybe they're just, even if they're just drones, they send, they gather information, they go back or whatever. That's one theory I've always thought. So that's, uh, that's kind of what I think. Andrew, what do you think? Um, there's a couple of things that jump out at me that I don't really like that much. Like, I, you know, like we touched on earlier, I made a point of asking, like, was it Terahuchi that made the majority of the statements? Was he the one that was kind of speaking for everybody? And he was the, also, he was also the guy that had several different encounters with UFOs. Sure. You know what I mean? So that to me is a little bit suspect. That being said, I think the three of them definitely saw something. I think, um, Teruchi kind of planted the seed that it was a UFO and maybe the other two guys bought along. You know what I mean? And I think maybe Teruchi really wanted it to be a UFO because he was already into it. You know what I mean? A lot of times you, the human eye sees things and we don't know what the fuck it is. We have no idea. You know what I mean? It's too hard for you to fucking digest. Could have been one of those weather anomalies, potentially. The fact that we have this waffling as far as was it on radar, was it not on radar? Because from what I saw, they pulled that. They said, no, nothing showed up on radar. But there is that one guy that says, yes, I saw someone on radar. That's confusing. Makes me think maybe they're trying to cover something up. I like the idea of them sending some type of observation drone because it doesn't really fit that narrative of, oh, there's an Air Force base nearby. There's a nuclear base nearby. Like, what are they there looking for? What are they doing? We don't know. So maybe it is just a drone out there searching. And if that's the case, if they have the ability to travel you know what I mean? Light years away from where they are, they wouldn't send some massive fucking thing Huge. size of ego, the living planet. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, so, well, the, <clears throat> we're in Alaska, end of the Cold War, so there probably, there was definitely nuclear bases up there. I don't know if that, in that exact location, but I don't know. Dan, what do you think? To some of the points, it's like, I can't, I, I would probably, I probably side more on the ET side than I would like some type of secret Russian technology because at this time, like 1987, you've got stuff like the B-2 bombers coming into service, like getting ready to go. You've got the SR-71 Blackbird, both of their extremely advanced aircraft in terms of, you know, aeronautics and technology and, and surveillance technology, all that stuff. Like these things are fucking boss ass planes and the Soviets couldn't touch them. That we know of and and then i would have to reason you'd have you to, to reason with mm. like okay so they had these these type of aircraft that were described by terry Uchi moving in ways that did not conform with how we understand the laws of physics and then like but they couldn't catch the sr-71 blackbird yeah so i i'd have to you know you'd have to reach further and try to be like okay well maybe it is et crab he spoke to something about the maneuvering, maybe maneuvering thrusters. So maybe they were to some type of scout ship or perhaps even some sort of damaged craft or something like that. So the mothership had to intervene, had to come pick it up. Why it was pacing the the 747, that's that's something oh, that yeah. I wouldn't really know. It's it's hard to speak to the to the motives of a you know, an alien <laughs> if it is an alien race that has crossed the vast distances. Hyper intelligent universe. In order to come over here, and maybe they were just could be just they were messing with them. Could have been, could have been that they were retrieving their things or intimidation, or maybe to make sure they hadn't uh, affected it in any way. Maybe they thought maybe they thought the craft was damaged because it started making sudden turns and things like that. Maybe that's maybe that's how they reasoned with it. Maybe, but who knows? You know, uh, 
from what I see, it's like there was something on the radar. So there is a lot of evidence supporting, at least in my eyes, there is some evidence that that is the best evidence that something was there. You had at least two or three radars. You had the radar from the airplane itself. You had the ground radar from the military base. You had the ground radar from Anchorage air traffic control picking up something, you know? So if all of them were picking up, whether it's some type of interference or radar split, like that seems kind of suspect or highly unlikely. And also, I mean, it's not unusual to me that the CIA or FBI or whoever was in the meeting with, with Callahan to be like, you never saw this shit. You never saw this. We were never here. This meeting never happened. That doesn't really surprise me at all because it's like, if they were, you know, they didn't at that point, you know, intelligence services didn't want anybody to have any idea of what pretty much was going on in the, or any any they wouldn't want them to have any reason to doubt that the u.s was winning the cold war you know right it's like you don't you don't want them to think that the u.s was behind and didn't have the forefront of technology uh everything in terms of like we rule the skies and we rule space and then i i i agree with you like i i definitely think it's an alien but just going to your point of like you know the russians couldn't you know keep up with the one united states plane that's if they like it, maybe it was one of those scenarios where if they did potentially have some kind of craft, you wouldn't want to release its capability, like let your capabilities be known to chase like the Americans plane, which is not maybe not as technology technologically advanced as yours. So you're just like, let it fly overhead, right? Pret- it pretend be. we can't keep up because we don't want them to know what we have. But I still, like I said, <laughs> I still, uh, I'm on the, on board with the aliens. For sure. I mean, uh, there is another encounter, but I think we're uh, let's save this one for a, a confidential. It happened about two months after this in the same type of airspace. Uh, it was Alaska Airlines Flight 53, I believe. So, so yes. we will uh, we'll get to that one maybe on a confidential because it's another short case. But it kind of uh, if you go search for other encounters in this area, this is not the only one to happen over here. So makes you wonder. I don't know. Fun topic, though. Cool case. Yeah, really cool case. Um, why don't we fire up the randomatron? Let's do it. Here we go. Spin it up. Yeah. Woo! Oh, looks like we got a fan submission here. Uh, dear ATT, my name is Jason Bourne. Uh, due to not wanting to be my named. My God, it's Jason Bourne. Can't get enough of the show. I look forward to listening every week. Now, I know from episodes long ago that you wanted an alien abduction story. Well, I thought that it's time for everyone to hear my story. I've only told two people this one was my wife and my best, best friend, who is also a fan of the show. The dates of the abductions were between 2001 and 2006. I lived in North Carolina in the suburbs of our town in Hendersonville. My bed was on the back wall where I was looking out the front bedroom window when laying down. My first abduction was in 2001 when I woke up. 
which is unlike me due to the fact that I'm a deep sleeper. I have seen three little greys outside my window, uh, which which none was about which none were the same height. The left was the shortest one, the middle being the tallest one, about five inches taller, and the one on the right being in between the two of them. After staring back at them for what seemed like forever, I suddenly passed out and woke up in a bright-ass room laying down on a metal bed. Light was so bright that every metallic-looking wall was reflecting the light, which made the room have no darkness to it. I only could open my eyes to look around. My body couldn't move at all, even though I wasn't strapped down to the table. Next thing I know, a tall grey walked in the room and started inspecting me. I could never remember if they did anything to me other than look over me, but I think they let you remember what they do to you. Oh, I think they let you remember what they want you to remember. Mm. The tall grey left the room, then next thing you know, I'm passed out again, waking up on my bed the next morning. The second time I was abducted, I was about 10. It was a similar to the first time, other than my bed being moved to the other corner, which when I felt a present, I sat up and looked out the same window. When I woke up on the table again, after they were done checking on me, they let me get up and walk around the ship. It was full of doorways and a long hallway. When I got to the end, a door opened. It was the entrance to the command center. It was nothing but a big room full of buttons, screens, but no windows. There were a couple of greys working up there, some tall and some little greys. After looking around for a bit, I got escorted back to the room. After entering the room, I passed out, and the next thing you know, I'm back at my house, waking up the next morning. It took me a while to remember what had happened. Later, it all started to come back to me. Now, the most recent thing happened to me was in 2010, when we moved west to West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a Friday night. My brother and I were on our way back home from skateboarding and hanging out. We lived in the middle of nowhere on top of a mountain. It was around 11 o'clock at night. We were heading up the hill to the intersection at the top of the hill. I noticed a big craft looked as big as a football field and the darkest black color to it. Flat on the bottom side, flat on the flat on the bottom flat on the sides and rounded corners with no sound now what was strange is that it wasn't moving fast around 10 miles per hour or less just hovering over the tree line which was only 50 to 70 feet tall i'm freaking out in the passenger seat saying my brother holy shit do you see that and my brother replied do you see what while i'm having my heart racing on what i saw i do believe it was the ship that i was on it was heading down the ridgeline to my house and I thought it was coming back for me, but noticed I wasn't alone or just to let me know I'm not crazy. But when we made the corner onto the road I lived on, it was gone. Uh, sorry it's so long, it's so long, but I had to get this out. I didn't tell this story to people because I didn't want them to think I'm crazy. I've only told two people this. You can think what you want, but I really have dreams and I know the difference. I thought, why not just tell the best podcast around? Uh, to tell this story keep up the awesome work thanks jason Bourne. fuck what a story man wild what's well, the, the trademark of like you know you, people say they don't remember when it happens but they get these memories flooding back to them later on mm -hmm. it's like whatever kind of hold they have over you wears off and like, like something can trigger that memory and then it just comes rushing back like whatever block they have like you, you hear the right song or something 
Yeah. And you try and assassinate the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, what prime minister was it? I, was it China? I don't know. You become, a, you become the lead singer for Creed. <laughs> no, but that's a... That's a you don't we we haven't got a ton of actual abduction stories that and that one was no, that's awesome. like the that's like the one of the first ones yeah like that it's for awesome. sure yeah great story um, Andrew theorite of the week our theorite of the week is Kimberly Hackworth for her unreal <laughs> rendition of Fjord the half orc eunuch she did a good job <laughs> yeah it it's was awesome. great that's canon it's fantastic uh, we'll make sure to. Uh, It'll be on the Facebook group, and we'll try and remember to take a screenshot, give credit, and put it on Instagram as well, if we remember. We're bad at it, but right. we're getting- She's got a bunch of other- She's a Neo Moon art. I think she does a bunch of other art stuff, so it's like- Great artist, she's yeah. She's very Pretty talented. Good stuff. Unreal artist, yeah, for sure. Uh, if you're not supporting on Patreon, and you want access to all our bonus stuff, after hours, and all the goodies- Head over to pa- patreon.com slash alien theorist podcast or, d- or just check the link in the podcast description. Probably easier. This week's newest Patreon supporters. Need a little more volume here. There we go. Are Ollie Gash, Alex Cruz, Abby Seven, a full year pledge by Jacob Hurst. Arana Discoteca went up to a $6.66 pledge. Appreciate it. Number to the beast. Boom. Full year pledge (laughs) by Fernando. (laughs) Missy L, our newest top tier supporter, Daniel Clouston. Cheers, brother. We appreciate the support. Right on, brother. Oscar Ramirez, Jay Wiseman went up. Not a yoke squatch and Landon so Orr. Just a regular squatch. Just a regular squatch, I guess. And Landon Orr. Thank you very much for supporting the show. And as we always say at these things, in the end of these things, keep those eyes on the skies. Peace. <laughs>